Um, and, uh, and Anna and I have just spent this time at this little monastery in, uh, in Wales called, for Fawde, uh, called Fawde Brennan. And Fawde Brennan uh, basically is like, if you've been to Natsiawa River Monastery, it's like that, but if it was run by like crazy Pentecostals. That's um, basically the vibe. Um, so like a little bit wacky, but also really awesome. And basically this monastery has been going for about 20 years. And when they started this monastery, they decided what they would do is that they would just bless the land and bless the people of the land there. And the, the amazing thing about Wales um, is, uh, is that it has this like really intense kind of indigeneity to it. Like it is, it is bilingual. Like we were driving around and Anna's like, oh my gosh, all the signs are in Welsh and English. This is amazing. Um, and you just hear Welsh and you just hear English. Um, and there's this interesting thing too where the people, because they've been there so long, have this deep sense of connection to the land um, and this deep sense of connection to where they come from, which for me as a Pākehā person was kind of a cool thing to, to, to see um, because it's not often that you see um, yeah, Pākehā people with that, that same kind of sense of like indigenous grounding. Um, and so when this monastery started up that we were staying at, they decided that they would begin by blessing the earth and blessing the people. And so they would just get up each day and they would bless the ground. And, uh, and I told some of you about this at Blueprint Camp, but what began to happen is that the dry streams started to have water in them again. And the dry rivers started to run again and the, the cows that were barren started to have calves again. Um, and this like beautiful thing happened where um, their acknowledgement of the land and the people um, and their blessing upon that actually changed their surroundings. And, uh, and, and I, I, it kind of reminded me a lot of this as I was coming back and looking towards Waitangi Day um, and, uh, and what, what that means to us. Because I, I often think of that scripture, you know, that says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves um, and... Uh, and, and repent, then I will heal their land. And so I think at the, the core of the story of Waitangi Day, at the core of the story of Māori and Pākehā in New Zealand, um, the Anglican Church is actually right there. Like, we were the church who did some of the good, but a lot of the bad too. Um, and so I actually think for there to be reconciliation, um, and for there to be blessing of people and blessing of land in this country, um, we're actually a part of that. We're actually a part of that coming back together again. And, and sometimes I think those like initial um, interactions across cultural boundaries that you maybe haven't been familiar with can be incredibly awkward. Um, I gave this sermon this morning at, uh, at All Saints in Hai Tai Tai, which I'm looking after for a couple of weeks. And I was remembering the first time I did a Noho Marae, um, staying over, and we, we, um, we're lining up for the hongi after the, um, the kōrero, and we, uh, we're standing there, and um, I come upon this lady, um, and uh, and you, I don't know if you've ever had that situation in this moment where you're not sure if we're going for the hongi, like the nose press, or whether you're going for the kiss on the cheek. Um, and so I'm kind of coming in, and I see like her begin to kind of go for the nose press, and then she sort of backs off, and then she goes for the kiss, and I sort of go back to the nose press. And then what ends up happening is I just plough my nose into her neck. And, um, <laughs> It's just like, 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 you know, it's, you know, it's even worse. I feel like when, like, Pākehā people are trying really hard not to be culturally offensive, our likelihood of getting it wrong just goes up about a thousand percent at that moment. Um, another one of these, uh, my um, brother-in-law, he um, is, um, yeah, he's part of iwi at uh, Pōhara Marae Mangatauturi up north, and he's a farmer, and the first time I met him, um, I was like, Scotty, like, don't, just don't say anything dumb, you know? And, uh, and so I said, oh, Jim, what have you been up to this week? And he says, I've been, uh, been carving. 
Like, oh, what have you been carving? Cows. <laughs> and uh, anyway, farm joke. Lost on some of you. Um, but um, but but there can be there can be this like this incredible awkwardness. And um, and and I think like one of the the things that came to mind as we look at our passage for today. Actually, let's just start with the passage. Can somebody? Um, can you give me the first slide? Cool. Um, who's got a Bible on them? Rose, have you got a Bible on you? <laughs> you, got a, you got a phone on you? On oh, what about Ty's got one? All right, Ty's on it. Ty, can you pull that up and can you read that out? Can you stand up and read that out? Yeah, I can do that. Where's he gone? <laughs> Is there like a good Wi-Fi spot there or something? No, 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 just, just a good viewing of All right. Um, 22 to 33. Everybody give Ty a round of applause. Come on. <laughs> Luke 22. Wait, yeah, Luke 2. two. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Zoe, can you help? <laughs> okay, 2 verses 22 to 23. 33. <laughs> <laughs> when the time came for their ritual cleansing in accordance with the law from Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. It's written... In the law of the Lord, every firstborn, firstborn male will be dedicated to the Lord. They offered a sacrifice in keeping with what's stated in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. A man named Simeon was in Jerusalem. He was righteous and devout. He eagerly anticipated the restoration of Israel and the Holy Spirit rested on him. The Holy Spirit revealed to him that he wouldn't die before he had seen the Lord Seen the Lord's Christ. That doesn't make sense. Seen the Lord's Christ. Right. Led by the Spirit, he went into the temple area. Meanwhile, Jesus' parents brought the child to the temple so that they could do what was customary under the law. Simeon took Jesus in his arms and praised God. He said, Now, Master, let your servant go in peace according to your word. Because my eyes have seen your salvation, you prepared the salvation in the presence of all peoples. It's a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory for your people Israel. His father and mother were amazed by what was said about him. Cool. Thanks, Ty. So we'll come back to that in a moment. Um, one of the things that um, I talked about this morning at All Saints is that when the first missionaries came to New Zealand, they were amazed by how good they were at like missionising or like evangelising. They're like, man, we are so good at this because Māori began to come to faith by the thousands, like really, really quickly. Um, and so they were feeling, feeling pretty good about their ability to communicate this gospel. But what they didn't know is that quite a few years before James Cook even arrived on their shores is that there was a man, uh, a Māori prophet by the name of Arama Te Tuaroa, and, uh, and he, he gave this word. He said, Te ingoa o tō rātou atua, Kotama i rorakutia, he atua pai otera, kangaro ano tetangata. And what he was saying there is that people are coming, and the name of their God will be Tama i rorakutia, the son who was killed. He will be a good God, however, the people will still be a priest. So these missionaries arrive thinking they're really killing it, but what's actually happened is that God has been doing a work in the people long before they got here. Returning back to Luke 2, there's this man named Simeon who has this word, he's convinced that God has spoken to him, that he will not die before he meets 
for Christ before he meets Jesus. And so Joseph and Mary come to present Jesus at the temple. Simeon holds Jesus in his arms and says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. And there's like a handful of similarities, I think, between these two stories, which I really enjoy. The, the first of these is you've got two people awaiting consolation in the coming of Messiah. Both had heard a prophecy from Māori Aramati Toiroa, and for the Jews, Isaiah and other prophets who had gone before, they were expecting consolation and liberation, both awaiting liberation. Secondly, two peoples who would still be a priest after that liberation came. Māori who would suffer under the colonisation that somehow came on the same boats uh, that, uh, that, the, that the written gospel did as well, and the Jews who would have their temple destroyed within 60 years after this one who had come called Messiah. But I think the really cool thing, the thing that I, that I like about these two things from, from Luke 2 and from the story of Arama, is that whether we're talking about missionaries who came after Arama Tetoiro or Simeon who came after Isaiah, both were merely declaring what God had already been doing long before them. What God had been speaking already in the Fenua and Whakapapa of New Zealand. What God had been speaking already from the prophets and the tribes of Israel. So here's a truth we can get around our heads and, and who God is. Long before the missionaries arrived in Aotearoa, God was at work to seek and save the lost. Long before Simeon held Jesus in his arms, God was at work to seek and save the lost. God does not step into our workplaces, our schools, or our communities when we do. He was already there seeking and saving the lost before we arrived. And I think this is where so much of the, 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 the blend of colonisation and religion went so wrong, is the belief that Jesus stepped off the boat when we did. Is the belief that Christ is not in a place until we are, but God is already working. There's a pattern in scripture that it is always God who initiates and starts the process of redemption. Humans don't start the process of reconciliation and redemption. God is always the initiator. He's always the starter of redemption. Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The uh, Scotty translation. God shows us how much he loves us that he died for us before we even wanted him to die for us, or before we were even willing to receive it, or before we even asked for it. That God's initiation of redemption preempts us crying out to God. And this is important because if we believe fundamentally that we initiate salvation, reconciliation, and redemption in the world, then what we actually believe is that we have to reach up to God rather than in a God who came down and reached us, and our faith has become about our own reaching up rather than his reaching down. And it's a dangerous vision of God because it requires an always stretching from us to see if God will come through. You see, when we couldn't attain the righteousness of God, God became human in Jesus. God came down. This is not a story. Our story is not one where God meets us halfway. Like we repent, I say, I'm really sorry. And God's like, all right, I'll come down. <laughs> Like, you know, like it's not like the lunch date, you know, when maybe I go to like, I don't know, meet Shang for lunch or something. And he's working at Thornton, I'm working in Cuba and we go, we'll meet at Old Bank Arcade. No, it's like Shang comes to my house and he brings lunch. Like, you know, this is, this is the, kind of, the, the kind of dynamic. It is, not, it is not 50-50. And this is our central story as Christians, that God loved the world so much that he gave his only son 
that whomsoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. God gave his son before he knew how we would respond to that. And so what does all of that kind of mean? Well, just like God set foot in Aotearoa long before the missionaries did, just like he didn't need Simeon to say it for Jesus to be the Christ, God has never needed convincing of how he feels about us. God has never needed convincing of how he feels about us. God has never needed us to beg enough for his heart to be inclined to us. When you prayed a prayer to start following Jesus, you didn't twist his arm to finally be faithful to you. And and nor was it a contract you signed with God so that you could now have a relationship together again. What happened is that you said you wanted to participate in the life of Christ that had been going on forever and ever and ever before that since the beginning of time. You said, I don't want to live in opposition to the plan you have initiated for redemption and restoration of the world. I want to live in sync with your heart and with your plan. I don't want to resist your heart to bring us all home. Here's a different kind of a definition of sin for you to think about. Sin is our resistance to the plan of God for restoration. Sin is our resistance to the plan of God for restoration. God wants to make all things new. Sin is us bent on destruction and decay. Repentance is a return to participation in the life of Christ and the work he has always, always, always been doing. So if God is for you, and needs no convincing, and if he's already in your workplace and needs no convincing, and if he's already in your family and he needs no convincing, then the question for me, someone who likes to control a lot of things, is what on earth am I here for? <laughs> like, what am I doing on this earth if the initiative of God's, like, what will Scotty control and manipulate to feel like I deserve the little bit of air that I breathe each day? It doesn't sound like God needs us. He seems to have it all covered. I guess what I'm really asking is, to some degree, like, what is our purpose here on earth? If God's kind of got it? Well, N.T. Wright um, puts it really well. I've been reading a book of his recently um, called The Day the Revolution Began. And he says this, Jesus' followers have been given a new kind of task. The great jailer has been overpowered. Now someone has to go and unlock the prison doors. Forgiveness of sins has been accomplished, robbing the idols of their power. Someone has to go and announce the amnesty to sinners far and wide. And that has to be done by means of a new sort of power, the cross-resurrected spirit kind of power. What's, um, what's Tom Wright saying here? The jailer has been overcome. Our role is to open up the prison doors. The false gods have had their power taken away. Our job is to announce freedom. God has initiated a new kingdom reign. The empire is done. It is time to declare it and to open up the doors. And tell the captives they are free. And tell the captives they are free. That's righteous. So what is this role? What is our role here on earth? If it's not to initiate redemption, if that's what God does. Well, it's much like Aramatatoiro's prophecy. A good God has come, but the people are still oppressed. A good God has come, but the people are still oppressed. God is moving but we still need to open the jail doors. We still need to speak truth and reconciliation. And so out of those two things, I think are basically our task here on earth. In the words of, of Tom Wright, is we need to announce the amnesty. We need to declare that God has come, that he is here, that God has always been here. 
What do I mean by that? I mean to tell people that they are good with God and that there is another way. You know, the other night I was having dinner with, um, I think it was Nathan, Rebecca and Hamish, and we're sitting there for a while, and then Hamish at one point just says, hey, can I just say something a moment? He says, um, I just have a real sense that God is with us right in this moment. And I think we all have those experiences, you know, several t- um, often where there is a moment where we know that there is something other than the space. We know that the fact that God has always been present, that, that he is present with us right here, and we dare actually name that thing, to say God is with us. Um, I've, I've really loved um, recently with our, our seasonal guide group, um, hanging out with Hannah O'Donovan a bunch recently, and, and watching her journey of working out how to articulate this always presence of God in her workplace. It's a really, really powerful thing to watch. We get an example of this in Acts 17. Paul was in Athens. He's at this, uh, this meeting, this big conversation about religion. And he stands up in the middle of the meeting and he says this, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. So Paul arrives, and this was not uncommon in Roman and Greek settings, as to kind of like cover all your bases with gods, you know? <laughs> so you would like to have your God of war, but then also like, no joke, let's have a God of the porch, and uh, let's have a God of the kitchen cupboard. Um, and gods of the hearth of the fireplace. And so in this case, they have set up a temple just in case, which is like, to an unknown god. Whoever else may happen to be out there, just know, we're sorry, we forgot you. Um, and, um, and so they've set up this thing, and Paul walks into this space. And rather than recoiling at the possibility that there might be this pagan worship, this different thing going on, he says, I know your unknown god. I know your god who has always been here always working here, and he declares and he names that God to the people. He takes an ordinary daily thing, the altar to the unknown God, and he announces it as a picture that the kingdom has come. Now, what are our temples today, right? I mean, I often think it's interesting to think what the tallest buildings are in a city, because it historically used to be that churches always had to be the highest buildings in the city. You know, St. John's here in Wellington on um, Willow Street actually got a whole lot of their money by selling their height to the Majestic Centre, um, so that they could go higher. It's really interesting. This has happened all around the world. And so um, if we had to look at what the highest temples are in our cities, they're now the places of commerce, right? They're now the places of consumerism. They're the places where we bring our offering, our work that we've done for the week in order to buy the clothes that sanctify us or make us feel good enough. And so what does it look like for us to be a people who can head into the temples to the unknown gods and to be able to name God has always been here and to articulate that to people, to articulate the presence of God that has always been there. Am I making sense here? A little bit, all right. Um, Paul says a similar, a similar thing um, in Romans about the, import, the importance of this announcing. He says, Romans 10, 14, 15, he says, 
How can people call on Jesus to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? And how can they hear about him unless someone tells them? And how will anyone go and tell them without being sent? This is why the scriptures say how beautiful are the feet of the messengers who bring good news. I think it's time for us to do a pendulum swing back from that one we've done as millennials where we got really obsessed with that line that has preached the gospel if necessary use words. I think it's time for us to use a lot of words because I think we've been quiet for a very, very long time. And I don't think you can read the scriptures without understanding that it is your holy vocation to declare the presence of God wherever that may be. And that's not just for our evangelists, that is for all of us, is to become a people who can know where God is moving and declare that and name that to people. God is already at work in the world, already at work in your family, already at work in your work, in your work. and we are here to announce that the forgiveness of sins has been accomplished. How can they hear unless we notice it and announce it? So firstly, I think part of our reason for being here is to announce the amnesty, to announce that people are free, that God has already been working and the kingdom is at hand. But secondly, it is, as, as Tom Wright says, it is to open the prison doors. He says, the jailer has been overcome. It's time to open up the cell doors of prisoners. C.S. Lewis famously said, the gates of hell are locked from the inside. In other words, God has taken the initiative and liberated his people through Jesus, yet many remain in captivity under the illusion that the cell door is still locked. Many live believing that the gates that are open are locked. Yeah, I remember being a little kid, um, and uh, we used to go to this smorgasbord restaurant out in Petone um, called The Old Flame. Um, and, oh man, it's just so exciting, eh? Because you like, can start with ice cream. And then like ice cream, back to fish and chips, back to ice cream, back to fish and chips, pavlova, like, you know? And I just, I was saying to someone the other night, like, I can, all I can remember about all-you-can-eat restaurants is like the rainbow colouring of people's through vomited snow freeze, like on the pavement outside. Um, but um, I remember this one night, it was really terrifying, because the old flame was a little bit dingy, like they were just hanging on, you know? Like they, they really did, did not take care of this place. Very old flame, yeah. Um, and so um, I remember this, this um, as a little kid, must have been five or six, going into this toilet stall and locking it, and then like two minutes later going to leave, and this like door would just not unlock. And at like five or six, uh, you were like, this door will never open again. <laughs> like, I am here forever. Like, I will die on this toilet. And, 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 and will be the most humiliated child in the history of the world. And so you kind of, I don't know if you're like me, I'm probably maybe a little bit too neurotic around this, but I think the thoughts that went through my head is like, do I want to like die in here to not look foolish? You know, how loud do I want to actually shout and bang on this door? So I begin shouting and banging on this door and uh, trying to get this thing open. And eventually my brother comes in and is like, what the heck is going on? And then discovers that basically I've been pushing the wrong direction on this door for like 15 minutes. <laughs> and it's just like, ah. <laughs> um, and, and I kind of feel like there's, there's, there's something in that around that if we know the reality that the doors have actually been opened, that the jailer has been defeated, the jailer has been overthrown, we actually know that the, the traps, that the, um, the, the oppression of the world, that Christ can actually overcome it. We actually know that and we actually believe that. That's why we are, we are called in the scriptures witnesses, as we are people who have witnessed Christ's victory and so we know that it is possible. We know that it is possible, you know? It's like if you've seen someone fly before, right? If, like, I don't know, Ty, like, just randomly flew past the window right now, just, like, flapping his arms. 
And we got into a conversation with anyone who was like, people can't fly. We would say, bullshit. I saw one. And there'd be a whole room of us, 50 of us saying, people, it is possible. I saw a human man fly. Like, it can happen. And this is why, you know, it says in the scriptures, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, because that's the kind of foolishness we're actually invited into. It's like, we saw a man rise from the dead, and we can talk to him, and he lives, and his rising from the dead, it wasn't just some metaphor, but it actually blew the whole cosmos open. The whole game changed when he rose from the dead. That's why, that's why Jesus said, you are to be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, is to believe something crazy and absurd and declare it to the world and invite them into it. We saw a human man fly, you know? Like, this is the kind of foolishness that we are invited into. And other people were saying, no, that jail cell, it is bolted shut. And we say, no, I saw a man raised from the dead. It is open. It is open and we can invite people out. This is what it is for us to be witnesses. You see, Jesus was his first sermon he preached in the synagogue, Luke 4, 18 to 20. I read this all the time, but it's like the, the pivotal thing of who Christ is and what he came to do. As he said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. He begins with a message of liberation. The jailer has been overcome. The doors are open. Nothing about going off to heaven here, just throwing open the gates for prisoners. When he sends out the 12 disciples, he sends them out with pretty much exactly the same stuff. He says, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven is here already. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons, freely you have received, freely give. You know, there's no version of Christianity that doesn't have us open, opening jail doors. There's no one that doesn't see us going into the places of oppression and saying, the doors are already open, the shackles you're wearing at the moment, they can actually come loose. God is saying, I've turned the key, the gates are unlocked. Break the bars of poverty, break the bars of captivity, break the bars of sickness, break the bars of injustice. One, one final thing I, I want to say around this before we, we wrap up. There's um, scripture I love, Romans 8.18. And it uses this interesting metaphor. Paul says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. Just that first line again. The whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth. Paul talks about this tension between the kingdom and the moment we live in now as a woman in contractions. So the world is a woman in contractions longing to see the child she has carried for so long. Longing to see her son or daughter. That's the metaphor he gives, like the, 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 the absolute passion to see life revealed. And I think if that's the case, the people of God are called to be midwives to creation. Like that's, that's our role, is that God has already made the life. The life we exist. God has already initiated redemption, but we say life come forth. Breathe, push. Like, we say be restored, new creation. Be restored, earth. And we call that forward and we declare it around us. 
I wonder how that metaphor might change the way we see ourselves in the world if we understood that we are the midwives who are bringing forth the new kingdom, the new creation and the new reality. On the cross, God has come down so we no longer need to reach up for him. Jesus has defeated death. God has taken the initiative for salvation like he always, 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 always has. The great jailer has been overpowered. Forgiveness of sins has been accomplished. The idols have been robbed of their power. Someone has to go and announce amnesty between God and humanity. Someone has to go and open the jail doors. I think our reason, a huge part of our reason for being here is to announce to the world that our captivity is over and to lead other captives free. That's what we're here for. To announce that our captivity is over and to lead other captives free. Why don't we um, be still for a moment? Close your eyes if you'd like.